Hi, I'm Austin Floorshoots, and I am the director of science for truepotency.com. You're listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Hey, everybody, this is Jason Wilson with the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. Uh, so today I'm joined by Austin Floorshoots, a scientific director with a company called True Potency that uh, they sell CBD products. But the reason I was attracted to them to talk to them today is because they do extensive third party testing on CBD products to try to see how products hold up against their claims. Uh, so thanks so much, Austin, for being willing to come on the podcast. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. It's a great opportunity to kind of get some knowledge out there from a kind of a different perspective than some of your uh, other uh, artists or, I guess, uh, guests on the show. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think we'll have uh, plenty to talk about, especially with my testing background and everything. There's all sorts of fun stuff I'm interested to dive into. Um, for people that aren't familiar with True Potency, because you guys kind of started fairly recently, the end of last year, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Do you mind um, just kind of explaining a little bit about kind of how True Potency came together and uh, kind of what your mission is and everything? Yeah, so True Potency kind of came together around this idea that um, there's a lot of bad CBD products out there. Um, the kind of original article that kicked this off was a 2017 article published in the Journal of American Medical Association that essentially estimated about 70% of products are mislabeled out there. Um, so this could be, say, a 1,000 milligram tincture, and maybe it only has 500 milligrams in it, or maybe it has 1,500 milligrams in it. You know, you don't want too little, and you don't want too much if you're trying to use this as, you know, medication. And there's definitely been other studies that kind of show this, that there's a lot of, you know, bad product out there that are mislabeled on the market for sale. And so we kind of wanted to jump in and help kind of do these rigorous tests that the companies are supposed to be doing but aren't um, and to make available products that um, we think um, are legitimate they are labeled correctly and they also have you know potentially interesting other compounds in there other cannabinoids and terpenes that we kind of find in these tests um, and so that's how it kind of came to be is really to give confidence to the consumer that what they're buying and, and consuming is safe to consume yeah. And what is your role specifically with True Potency as the science director? So I do a lot of, I kind of um, direct the testing of all of this. Mm -hmm. So uh, we use a lot of the same labs that um, are used in, say, medical marijuana or mm -hmm. recreational marijuana. Um, and so I'll essentially get a sample in, uh, prepare it to be sent out to these labs um, to be tested, and then I interpret the results from there. Um, now, it would be pretty awesome to do a lot of this testing in-house, um, but one of the reasons we do these third-party labs is um, to kind of take the bias out of it. Um, and if we were to you know, set up our own lab, that would also be a, a pretty big uh, upfront investment on everything as well to kind of get all your certifications <laughs> and stuff like that too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Big, big project. And uh, what are the tests that you're running on all of the products that come through? And I imagine there might be some variability because there's a wide variety of CBD products out there. Yeah, so usually to kind of start off with when we're kind of probing whether a product or a brand might, might be good or not, we usually just stick with a cannabinoid um, test, which is kind of tells us is the main labeling component of this correct? So going mm -hmm. back to that, 1,000 milligrams on the tincture, does it actually have 1,000 milligrams? Now, obviously, there's, you know, room for error, room for variation. Um, sure. But, you know, we don't want 500 milligrams in a 1,000 milligram tincture. Um, but usually after we kind of get the um, first test kind of done to say, okay, we, we think this is probably good and we want to potentially carry this, we'll do usually a full panel on it. So basically this would be along with cannabinoids terpene content, which kind of gives us our potential effects of this product. Um, and then we also want to do safety tests as well. So residual solvents, basically all of these CBD products have been extracted from 
um, hemp and the hemp flower. Um, we want to make sure there's no heavy metals in there from the field, yeah. um, pesticides and mycotoxins from mold. Um, so we, we try to do full panels on um, just about all of our products. Um, so that, that we start off kind of low and then expand as we really kind of pull it into our uh, lineup. Yeah, that's a that's a good strategy of that kind of first check. Like, well, let's even see if the potency label's right, and then if it is, that kind of gets you through the door, and then you open yourself up to the battery of, you know, uh, contaminant testing and other other uh, stuff like that. That's I think that's a really good strategy. It obviously uh, helps save you some money doing it that way. It's like why waste the time of testing everything else if they can't even get the potency label correct. Um, and was there an experience that you had personally that kind of drove you towards all this? I mean, it's it's well known, you know, that the CBD products are, a lot of them are mislabeled. I remember the FDA in like 2016, and then I think again in 2018, or it might have been 2015 even, uh, they, you know, published public data too, showing that a lot of CBD products, like some of them don't even have cannabinoids in them whatsoever, um, or they're sneaking THC in there, you know, all sorts of other things. Um, so beyond just the publications, did you have a personal experience um, at all that kind of made you more passionate about this? Um, from a mislabeling standpoint, I, I don't think um, really there. I, I come from a, an undergrad where I worked in a medicinal chemistry lab. And oh, okay. So one of the, we worked with the salvia plant there. So not, oh, cool. not cannabis, but yeah. um, our goal was to actually extract um, the main compound out of there. And for those of you who don't know, this is a uh, hallucinogenic plant, actually. So it's um, salvia divinorum. Yeah. And, yep. you know, our goal wasn't to you know, make people hallucinate. We actually wanted to do chemistry on this and essentially make um, new drugs that were potentially non-addictive painkillers. And I did some of that in grad school as well. In my neuroscience lab, we focused on opioids addiction as well as using cannabinoids as alternatives to opioids. And so my kind of direction into um, this kind of CBD and cannabis comes from, I guess, more of the academic side of things mm -hmm. and looking at it from kind of a harm reduction. You know, opioids yeah. are a really bad thing. You know, opioid epidemic, lots of addiction and death rates associated with that. So. Um, that's that's where my view kind of comes in, and if people are trying to use these products as you know medication, we don't want them to be taking too little, or you know it can't could also have interactions with other medications. So you don't want to take too much at the same time. There's a lot of these things to consider, and you know I think public education is a huge part of that too because mm -hmm. there is a lot of misinformation, um, and it is very widespread. So I think that's part of my passion as well is to kind of get, you know, basic education out there to um, consumers who might not necessarily understand all the uh, ins and outs of the CBD and cannabis plant. Yeah. Well, that's that's super, super fascinating. I'm going to have to pick your brain later about some of your salvinorin research because, um, yeah, salvinorin A and B, there are these weird compounds that um, interact with opioid receptors in a strange way and elicit strange effects that you don't normally associate uh, with that kind of um, stimulation. But then um, I learned recently that at least salvinorin A, I think also uh, directly interacts with the endocannabinoid system in several ways too. So it's fascinating plant compounds um, that we still don't understand super well, but that's, that's really cool that, that that's part of your, your research background um, very much in my, my world of interests. Um, and that's, uh, you know, where you're speaking from is kind of uh, where I'm coming from, too, as far as my involvement in the testing labs. It's like a, uh, a recognition that regardless of how we label these products, you know how people are using them and you want to see people be safe and, um, and know what they're getting. And one thing that I think about with the mislabeling is just how hard it is to get consistent experiences. And if you can't trust the labels and you don't know your dosaging, all these other issues, um, then how can you even begin to get anywhere, you know, with trying these products and trying to find what works? Because you're basically shooting in the dark every time if you can't trust the label. Yeah, so I just wanted to add to what you were saying. And basically, when you're a new customer or a new person who is looking for these CBD and cannabinoid-based products, 
if you find the first two or three aren't working for you, you probably don't want to keep using those in the future. Yeah. Um, and those two or three products might have been bad brands that were completely mislabeled. And if that person would have used a legitimate product, maybe it would have helped their um, daily pain or anxiety or whatever they're kind of looking at to um, help them out. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point that part of this is also trying to bring some uh, trust to some consumer trust to the industry itself um, so that they don't potentially get misled by a couple of bad products when there are good ones out there that maybe would bring um, some good benefit. And um, within the True Potency company, um, do you have other people that you work with too to try to... Um, I mean, I'm sure there, there are multiple dynamics going on here because you're vetting companies, CBD companies. You're also working with labs and vetting labs. And there's sort of, a, um, I don't know, a lot of different interplay here. Yeah, so um, I kind of I have to work with some of the marketing team, um, mm -hmm. some of the product team, our um, kind of CEOs as well. But I've definitely been in a lot of more you know, business type calls um, that don't have a whole lot to do with science, um, mm -hmm. but kind of being the, the science person there who mm -hmm. knows what these COAs actually mean. Um, why do you have to take your milligrams per gram times density to find out how <laughs> many milligrams per milliliter are in a bottle? Yeah. So these type of things, but, um, but it, it can even come down to, you know, talking to people, um, in the company on, you know, this might be a great product, but do you like the, the label on this? Does it mm -hmm. look presentable? You know, it, it's not all about the science, even though, you know, maybe I, I would want it to be right. Right. Um, but yeah. there, there is a consumer aspect out there. And, you know, I myself am a consumer and I am biased to other brands. And mm -hmm. let's say, you know, whether it's bikes or whether what groceries you're buying or your, your next phone, um, you know, I, I have certain personal tastes as well. So um, science is definitely part of it, but you also have to look at it from a business side of thing, actually yep. being a, a retailer as well. Yeah, absolutely. And what's that process look like for, um, we'll start with the companies and then I want to talk about your experience with labs too, but um, how do you, what sort of grabs your attention when you're looking for companies um, to kind of bring into the, the true potency fold? So some of the, the major things um, that we look for is, do they have their own COAs available? So their certificate of analysis, is it publicly available for download on their website? And just kind of vetting it from there. So when was the last time this was tested? Is it a two-year-old <laughs> COA? Or are they using a COA from an isolate um, that they use to make the tincture, but they didn't actually test the final tincture? Right. Mm -hmm. So there's some of those things we look at initially. Um, now, that doesn't mean that a company that doesn't show their COAs is a bad company, or it doesn't mean that they're bad products or that they're not testing. They could be testing. It's just not publicly available. That's kind of one of the main things we look at. And just kind of general brand reputation as well. So, you know, Obviously, there's some big names out there that I, I won't say, but mm -hmm. um, if it's a more well-known publicly traded brand or you know a national brand, you have more confidence that they're actually you know batch testing. And if their mm -hmm. batch comes out bad, they're scrapping that or finding some way to fix the batch or re remediate that in some way. Um, so that's kind of where it starts. Um, and then usually we'll we'll kind of talk about it as a team. And just say, hey, does this make sense for us? Um, do we want to talk to them and, and get some of their product? And if it gets past there, then we do, you know, reach out to the company and say, hey, uh, we would like to carry you. This is who we are and what we do. Um, what do you think? And usually they'll they'll send us some of their product, and these will just be like standard off-the-shelf retail products that are fully factory sealed and everything. So these aren't special samples that are like pre-measured that they're sure, sending yeah. us or anything. Um, but what I'll let you do is then take it from the retail bottle into a completely um, unlabeled bottle so that when we do send it in, it's unbiased. So we'll, we'll slap a barcode on there so that we know 
what this product actually, or which product is actually which product. But when the lab actually receives it, they don't have any kind of bias from, oh, this is from Charlotte's Web, so we know it's going to be this, this, or this. Right. Or they don't know a particular potency mark that they're shooting for um, or whether it's supposed to be full spectrum or isolate. <laughs> so it's just to kind of take a little bit of the bias out of there. Now, obviously, labs are, we would expect and hope that they would be ethical and moral and that wouldn't be an issue, um, but just to kind of take that out of there. Um, we've definitely yeah. heard, um, you know, whispers in the industry that there can be a little bit of under the table dealings with some mm -hmm. of these results um, and things like that. So we're trying to be a little bit of a middleman and take some of that concern away from people who consumers who might be worried about that. Yeah, that's, that's really great. I know that when I first got into the um, the cannabis testing industry in Oregon, I had lots of clients that uh, told us stories of other labs they went to that they could um, pay for whatever results. Or even sometimes it's more, um, sometimes it's less nefarious than that. Sometimes it's like the uh, customer to the lab will say, this should have x amount of milligrams in it and even if the lab isn't intending on manipulating results if they see a result that doesn't come out what the client expected they start to sometimes question their own work if they don't have the proper quality controls in place to you know have additional confidence and then they start looking to try to see what's wrong with the testing that for some reason is it coming out um so there's a lot of a lot of dynamics there so that's really great and do you find that um companies uh what's what's been their their feedback to your approach do they seem to appreciate it um we kind of get a full spectrum of it yeah. so there's some people that are you know 100 totally behind it um there's definitely other companies that we've talked to that um are saying you know one second, sorry. Sure. Um, sorry. Um, there's also some companies um, that are like, well, we've done our own testing. We've spent, you know, thousands of dollars. Right. We batch test. Look at these. These are publicly available. Why can't you use these? Um, and, you know, there's some people that are in the middle that are like, well, we, we know we do our own testing, but we see the value in, in what you do. Um, and so it kind of depends on who we talk to. Um, so it can be an easier conversation or harder depending on um, who that is. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And what's your experience with the labs been? Um, I'm sure you've uh, <laughs> by now interacted with, with several labs and probably had different experiences. Um, I guess first I'll just kind of ask, what's your immediate impression uh, with kind of how the uh, cannabis testing labs are, are handling things and we'll go from there. Um. I, I understand where they're coming from because I've done HPLC work myself mm -hmm. um, and method development and stuff, but it, it's a little disheartening from a consumer standpoint when there seems to be a fairly decent amount of issues um, mm -hmm. that are don't necessarily have a good outcome at the end. Um, and it's really difficult from my perspective because I kind of see it from the science side as well as the business because I'm talking to a lot of the retail and marketing people. And so, you know, obviously different matrix matrices have effects on the, whether it's GC mm -hmm. or um, HPLC. But from a consumer, you would expect, you know, I send in a product, I get an accurate result back. And that doesn't <laughs> yeah. necessarily seem to be the case. Um, and it's, it is a little bit frustrating from a science side too, because it's like, well, you guys are this ISO certified lab, so shouldn't this be no problem? Like, I, I, why is there an issue? And it's like, well, mm -hmm. I can go back to my science side and be like, okay, well, I, I understand how I'll, there's all this variability and different matrices effects and, and this type of thing. But at the same time, it's like, well, we're spending hundreds or thousands of dollars. <laughs> yep. So, you know, where do I land on this? And it, it's hard to really um, come to a final conclusion on that. But I really think that I think last time we had a conversation on the phone was we need a, kind of a central regulatory agency that mm -hmm. makes sure that we have um, standard operating procedures in place from lab to lab so that you know when you send something in that you get a correct result back. 
Yeah. So. Yeah. I think, I think one of the big issues, sort of unspoken issues right now in testing that needs to be talked about um, that highlights this point is that there are so many matrices. There's so many different types of products that cannabis and CBD are going into. And if we want to get really technical about accreditations and everything, really a lab should be validating every single matrix that they come across. However, <laughs> we are in a, you know, even cannabis testing labs, it's a business and uh, the cannabis industry is growing so fast and there's so much demand that, and I hate saying this because the scientist in me doesn't want me to say this, but it is pretty much unreasonable to expect a lab to validate every matrix that they come across, especially when it comes to edibles and topicals and things where there can be so much variation and one company's CBD cream and another company's CBD cream could be very different uh, when it comes to like the ingredients in there and how the lab handles it. And so uh, to your point of what we talked about on the phone uh, previously is wouldn't it be interesting if there were some centralized um, lab or lab group that was totally focused on standardizing methods, developing quality controls, and validating um, methods for every matrix that they can um, for the cannabis industry to shortcut these labs so that they can then take the best knowledge that's available at the time and integrate that in and have the best chance of success rather than having to try. I mean, I can tell you from working in the labs, these uh, these technicians and analysts, and particularly the lab directors, I really pity. Um, they have no time. They have no time to do investigative work. Um, any sort of research that they're able to tease out and present at conferences is usually a very stressful experience to do. And um, so I feel it on both sides. And And like you, I've been on both sides. I've been in the testing lab the third-party testing labs. I've also worked for um, uh, cannabis and CBD companies, helping them with in-house analytics and helping them troubleshoot how to interpret test results and interact with labs. And so I, yeah, I see the dynamics on both sides and it's, it's hard as a scientist to like, you want to bridge these gaps and it kind of breaks your heart a little bit of like having to connect the public with how, you know, some of the deficiencies of, um, you know, what they built up in their heads to be these very sophisticated labs and they are sophisticated, but there's, there's still a long way to go to make them better. I, I totally agree with everything you said. And there's something that I saw recently too, that opened my eyes a little bit more as well. Uh, but I watched a, a webinar and this gentleman from a testing lab was presenting um, just different strains of flour and how their internal standards were so differently affected from just different um, cultivars. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that just kind of highlights, you know, it, it's it's all cannabis, right? But it's really not. And it's hard. It, it really is. Yeah. And this is an issue in natural product science in general. I mean, these plants, uh, particularly these plants like cannabis, you know, or like let's say something like calendula or all, you know, these oily plants that make so many volatile compounds in their oils. And um, when you have plants that produce so many of these compounds, and it's particularly these lightweight compounds that are right around the same mass as cannabinoids and, you know, a lot of other things, it, it really can create a headache for sure. I know um, when I was working in the lab, one of the hardest things for us to do was to find a, what's called a blank matrix. So something that mimics the materials that you want to test, but that don't contain the target compounds. And uh, we use lavender, calendula, hops, all sorts of different things um, to try to be as representative as we could of that matrix. And you always ran into um, co-eluding compounds and things that uh, made it where you, you had to abandon them because so many of the terpenes that these plants make overlap with cannabinoids on most typical cannabinoid assays on either HPLC or GC. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's, it's a tough one for sure. And are there, are there particular products that you've noticed um, you run into issues more than with others when it comes to testing? 
Yeah, that's a great transition because um, you're mentioning kind of some of these other plants and how they co-elute and have mm -hmm. um, similar profiles. And one of the ones that we didn't know about and that we had to kind of ask the lab, um, we had this topical product that was made with lemongrass. Mm -hmm. And it was a, a, a CBD isolate product and it came back and it had a ton of CBG in there. And we're like, <laughs> this doesn't make sense. Like what, what's going on here? And so we reached out to the company who makes this product and they're like, oh yeah, we had the same issue. And it's like, well, you know, how are we supposed to know that from a consumer standpoint? You know, the, it might be typical for the lab to know, but this isn't something for, you know, somebody sitting outside to know. Yeah. And it just kind of shows you um, that some of these typical oils can kind of come out at the same time. The other question I do have about that is, you know, we, we asked the lab to reanalyze that and they looked at the spectra and it, and it didn't actually confirm to CBG, it confirmed to whatever it was in lemongrass that caused this. Then the question kind of becomes, what should our expectation be? Should that lab know know this to check that spectra on there? Right. Um, so that they just saw a peak at the whatever elution time it was. Do they have the obligation to click on that peak and see what the entire UV um, mm -hmm. on the DAD was actually showing there? Um, you know, we could have just taken that at face value and said, "Oh, this this is wrong. This lab is bad." But you know, we had the conversation with them and. Mm -hmm. Uh, both the company and the lab and kind of figured this out. And it kind of shows you a little bit of the method development side of things or product development side of things mm -hmm. too. Yeah, no, totally. And, you know, some other scientists that I've talked to that work in a more um, academic or research context that don't work in high throughput labs, uh, they'll tell me, well, of course you should be doing, um, you know, look at the the full UV spectrum of the diode array detector and you ought to have mass spec on there too and do confirmation through there. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. I agree. Like in an ideal scenario, that would be awesome. I would love to test everything through an HPLC and, uh, you know, a, a tandem mass spec and, you know, get really, really super accurate, you know, data in there, tell the isomers apart from each other and everything would be great. But you're talking to a lab that, is having to run dozens, if not hundreds of samples in a day, um, every day. It never stops. Uh, there's some seasonality, but these days with the hemp market the way it is, it really doesn't stop. Um, so, you know, you're talking about taking a method that normally, normally takes 20 to 25 minutes sometimes to run a sample with mo most of the common HPLC methods that labs are using. And you're talking about extending that to maybe like an hour um, that, you know, you start to talk about the, the business side of things and keeping the businesses afloat and turnaround times, you know, customers, they want their data back ASAP. And so there's all these different things and you add more elements, quality control gets more complex and it starts to spin out into the situation where you're like, well, I'd have to charge you twice as much. The results would take twice as long and I'd only be able to run half as many samples, you know? And so it's a compromise and um, it's something that we kind of have to just be real about that, you know, um, that it is a compromise. And I've, I've put out warnings out there that some of the data for a lot of the data, I think, I think for the minor cannabinoids is very unreliable that's floating around. And I think, you know, a good bit of terpene data that's floating around is probably unreliable too, um, simply because um, of how the labs are having to manage um, these, you know, high throughput environments. I don't blame them. Uh, they're doing the best they can. And I know a lot of people that work in these labs are great scientists and are doing the best they can to keep up. Um, but, you know, it's just the situation we have to work with. Yeah, I completely agree with everything you said. So I, I, I agree for sure. Um, and then another one that we we kind of had some issues with and we've kind of stayed away from is is water soluble products. So whether mm, they're like yeah. shots or beverages, mm -hmm. um, those surfactants they use to kind of get that nano emulsion or maybe yep. who knows if it's actually a nano emulsion um, actually messes with the machine completely where they can't detect any of this or th with the extraction process, wh wherever it is. Yeah, I know exactly. I've I've worked on that before, and it's the challenging thing with the nano emulsified stuff is getting a 
um, an efficient separation of those oil components from the water fractions. Because in general, you want to try to separate your phases and and try to inject as clean a sample as possible on your instrument. But when something's nano emulsified, you may be able to separate some of those cannabinoids out, but you're usually usually get a tiny fraction of what's actually there in the process of trying to separate those more polar compounds that you might not want to um, inject on your on your machine. One thing that I've noticed are topical products being seeming to be very variable. Um, is that something that you've run into as well? And I think the the reason is because a lot of topicals have other botanical ingredients in them, usually things to make them smell better or whatever. Um, so just to ask you about your experience, have you noticed if topicals tend to be more problematic than, let's say, um, alcohol sprays or MCT solutions and that sort of thing? You know, honestly, a lot of the creams and lotions, like the standard topicals, we haven't had a, a lot of issue with. Um, hmm, that's good. So overall, when we do see them, they tend to be a little bit on the, the lower side, <laughs> but still with within reason for sure. Um, whereas mo some of the other products, we tend to get more of a high and low, but this the topicals mm -hmm. tend to just be low. Um, so that might be part of the extraction process that you're, you're talking about, yeah. the issue there. But yeah, I mean, topicals don't seem to be a, a huge issue for us. That's good, yeah. And, and what's your margin? So when you're looking at a product's label, uh, of what the potency is on the label versus what you see on the test results that you get back, um, is that like a 10% margin, 15%? Uh, how much variance do you allow before you say, no, this is unacceptable? So most of the, the common ones like MCT oil, tinctures and stuff like that, it's 10%. And we took that from the, the JAMA study. Mm -hmm. um, it might be more realistic to look at 20, but we picked the 10% and that was a business decision. Some of the um, other matrices that are a little bit harder to test, we give a little more leniency. Yeah. So these would be like uh, transdermal patches mm -hmm. um, and we, we've tested some suppositories and um, some other things like that. We give a little more lenience to, but yeah, usually about 10 to 15% is kind of our, our max there. Yeah. And um, can you give some examples of, uh, products that you've maybe been excited to bring on and then you test and you've been very, uh, maybe surprised, um, by what you found? Yeah. So there's one company that we talked to that was a little surprising. So, um, they actually admitted to, um, well, uh, filling something up well over what it was supposed to be, mm -hmm. um, basically to make people happy, um, and so we got the product. We didn't know that before we got the product in, but <laughs> we got the product in and tested it and did all this stuff. And we're like, man, these are really, really high. What's going on here? Um, and we've, we've also had the exact opposite too. It's like, well, we really want to carry this brand. We've heard a lot of good things about it and we get it in. And basically everything is about half potency of what the label says. And it's like, well, what's, what's going on here? Um, so we've definitely hit it from, or we've got it from both sides on on that. And what what's sort of your typical um, pass and failure rates that you're seeing so far? It's actually pretty close to that that JMO study. So I, I would say mm -hmm. about sixty to seventy to eighty percent even products um, aren't passing that ten percent. Oh, wow. So it, yeah, it tends to be pretty far off. Um, now. A lot of more of the failures we tended to see at the start where we were a little bit more um, loose with some of the brands we were testing. Um, once our brand vetting process got a little bit better, um, we tend to have less issues with that moving forward. But I would still say even after doing some of this vetting, we're still seeing about half products fail depending on uh, the company. Um, and usually it, it within a brand or company, we tend to have good results. Um, but other companies will be, they might have half of their products on the mm -hmm. mark and half the other half are completely off. So it kind of brings in the question, like, do we want to actually carry those products? How is their batch testing? Um, and, and things like that. So it kind of calls into question quality control there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that you just touched on something that I was wondering if over time, if, um, 
the consistency is getting better and if uh, the accuracy um, of production is, is getting better. One thing that I've been disappointed by, but I also see as a uh, an opportunity is the lack of quality systems within the um, CBD product manufacturing environments. And I've I had the opportunity to work with a couple and um, it's so fun when you institute a quality system and you see it grow and evolve and you see a company's process get, you know, better and better, more and more dialed in. But then it makes you wonder, it's like, well, geez, you know, if most companies don't have any system in place at all, they're not tracking, you know, anything. I mean, one thing I, I point out to people is like, you should really um, value, I think, the FDA GMP rules, because while it's common to view them as sort of oppressive, like, why do I have to, you know, abide by these FDA rules and everything? Um, a lot of them, a lot of these rules are there for very good reasons and, and they require, um, some very basic quality system stuff. And, uh, some of the things that come to mind that I think maybe would improve, um, hopefully these trends over time is if the producers themselves were, uh, more carefully qualifying their own suppliers and actually validating their processes and everything. Um, so that they had some sense of what their own performance was other than just sort of keeping the fingers crossed when they send the the product off for testing. Um, but um, it seems like maybe we still have a long way to go if things are are still failing that bad. But you know, it's also one of those things like some of that some of that variance might be the labs and some of that variance is you know the producer and coming together to provide a bigger variance than, than possibly can be attributed to just the producer. Yeah, that I mean, the bottle, these a lot of these failures might in reality be within that say 10% mark, but with let's say degradation sitting in the bottle, um, and then maybe the variance from the workup to the actual detector itself having variance mm -hmm. will kind of push that over. And we, we try to kind of look at some that are close um, to the mark. Um, and give a little bit of lenience because we, we do mm -hmm. know that there there's variance everywhere. Um, but it's definitely, we still want to try to keep um, a decent idea of what's actually in there. Um, because yeah. like we said, you know, if people are using this as medicine, um, they want to make sure that the bottle that they previously used is going to be the same as the one that they're going to use next time when they run out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And do you foresee some of your testing programs expanding in the future? I mean, one thing that pops into my mind that might that might be interesting in the future is stability testing, seeing um, how things hold up in shelf life studies and that sort of thing. Uh, so do you have any of those sort of things on the horizon? We've definitely talked about doing the stability studies. Um, another lab that we've used previously, we've only done one test, but it was a uh, dynamic light scattering to basically mm. help confirm that these nano emulsions are nano emulsions. Yeah. Um, and the reason for that is because there's a lot of hype behind them being more bioavailable. Yeah. So just to kind of confirm that. Um, and then there's another lab that we've actually been looking at to test the canaflavins and the, the flavonoids that are in oh, the plant. Oh, great. Um, there's not a lot of, uh, there's only one lab that we actually know of that does that. I'm, I'm sure there's others. Mm -hmm. um, but it's definitely an, an interesting point. Um, so it, it would definitely be cool to kind of pick some of these up um, long term. Um, but we obviously probably wouldn't see some of those flavonoids and isolate products, mm -hmm. but maybe more of the, the full spectrum. Um, and it would also kind of be interesting to see whether these full spectrum products, how full spectrum are they really? You know, how much <laughs> yeah. of a plant are we actually getting out when we do this extraction? We've, yeah. we've definitely seen companies that are, essentially making um, hemp paste. So they'll grind up the plant and essentially use a, a whole plant in the product. Mm -hmm. And you're eating plant bits and you're actually getting a, a quote unquote full plant, full spectrum product out of it. Yeah, I mean, this, this is something that I've talked about and it's sometimes even debated um, with quite a lot of people now. Just like, what does that word full spectrum even mean? Especially when it gets confounded with the term whole plant. And um, it's cool to know that there are people out there that are doing true whole plant because um, in herbalism that's that's normally what you would do pull up the whole plant 
chop up the roots, chop up the leaves, chop up the flowers, you know, all these different things, extract it all, mix it together. Um, but then you have other companies that are making, you know, highly refined distillates um, that are also calling those full spectrum. And um, so uh, it's got to be incredibly confusing and frustrating to consumers, but it would be great to have some benchmark for these terms. Like, well, do you even have, you know, flavonoids in the extract? Um, there's, yeah, there's all sorts of other things you could um, go into too, but I think the flavonoids would be a great starting point because the um, the sort of cultural buzz around cannabis uh, flavonoids is, you know, slowly building. So there's, you know, maybe some motivation there for the labs to jump on that and, and start to be able to to offer that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, resveratrol and wine and like mm -hmm. uh, all the flavonoids in green tea are definitely uh, hot topics and um, kind of health and wellness. Yeah. And something that's been on my mind lately, because there was a paper that came out about it very recently too, are the, the quinone derivatives of cannabinoids too. So in a lot of these extracts, um, some of their color might be coming from oxidation of uh, cannabinoids into these cannabinoquinoids, um, tongue twister of a word. But um, uh, you know, that's another thing that would be eventually uh, very interesting to see as like a marker of, um, you know, essentially has this has the extract that went in to make this product um how well was it stored and taken care of did it have room to oxidize or how old is it that sort of stuff uh, you know a cbn obviously is another oxidation marker but I've, i'm really interested in these these quinone compounds i haven't spent much work studying them so that's kind of like there's like on my radar now diving into a lot of literature about them um but something that's been very interesting to me yeah, I think one of the interesting things about some of those other compounds, um, it's also kind of um, disheartening, is we don't really know what their biological function would be in yes, the yeah. body. Yeah. So while, while it'd be very interesting to see, okay, we have these rare cannabinoids in here, or we have these really cool flavonoids, but I think the next step is, you know, what are these actually doing? We, we need yep. the, the research to be like, um, is it beneficial for pain or anxiety or potentially cancer even, who, who knows? And um, I think that's for, you know, the academics to kind of, mm -hmm. we really need to push for, you know, cannabis research because there there is pretty obviously medicinal value here, um, but what is it and how do we take advantage of it? Right. Yeah, no, that's that's the, the great question. How do we take advantage of it? And something I'm hoping to see more, um, especially now that hemp is legal. I, I've mentioned this on other interviews, but something that has me really excited about hemp being legal now is the fact that universities can now touch the cannabis plant and start to look at, you know, these non-THC components and cannabinoids and other things and try to understand what they do. And right now, I think, I think there's a massive underappreciation for how little pharmacodynamic work has been done on a lot of cannabis compounds like you know we have some good sense of what thc does in the body and how it moves through the body how bioavailable it is how it's absorbed you know all this these sorts of how it's transformed all these things um and we know a decent amount about cbd but there's still a lot we don't know and more we're learning but then there's a huge steep drop off after that i mean there's a little bit done on cbn especially like um CBN was studied a lot before THC and CBD, um, and then it sort of got pushed to the side when THC got really popular and, and then CBD. But um, we don't know what a lot of these compounds do when they get in the body. We don't know what their bioavailability is like compared to other things that we do you know, have that data for. We don't know what their receptor targets are or how those receptor targets change in the context of other things. So getting into concept of like entourage effects and synergistic effects or additive effects or whatever, you know, like just understanding, you know, in vitro how something like CBG, which, you know, is kind of the big um, hot cannabinoid now on the tails of CBD, um, you know, we don't know how it interacts with receptors when other phytochemicals are thrown into the mix and um we don't you know 
another good example is I, I think you mentioned earlier CBD's um, potential drug interactions and how important it is to get the dosing right. You know, we know that THC also affects the liver in the same way that CBD does, but at, to a much lesser extent. Well, how does CBG have that effect? Is it more or less than CBD? And then, and then that just expands to all these other compounds. So there is a, a lot of unknowns when it comes to what these compounds actually do and what they might be useful for. And that, that's part of the reason that the pharmaceutical companies don't necessarily like the natural products and plant medicines because mm -hmm. the pharmacopoeia of everything together is, is too complicated to study. <laughs> they, you know, they want one drug. And if you have a, a combination of two or three drugs, you have to do each drug individually, then every yeah. combination of them and go through a, a whole thing to get these approved. And it, from a business standpoint, it's not worth it to them to actually do this. I know. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to the day long after we're dead where there's AI and a computer can sit there and go through all of these iterations really quickly and just, you know, simulate and be like, okay, we've done every combination of these like hundreds or thousands of chemicals together. Here are the ones you should focus on, ignore the, you know, whatever. Um, we've been going for um, almost an hour here talking about CBD and stuff, but I'm really also interested in, um, you know, what you were saying at the beginning, your neuroscience work, your work with uh, Salvia Divinorum and all these sort of stuff. So I just have some sort of fun personal questions for you, if that's okay. Yeah, that's fun. <laughs> cool. So what got you into studying neuroscience? Um, I really was interested in the human mind and mm -hmm. um, how it kind of works. And I found out to, that to really kind of study that, you, you really kind of need to study the brain. And the more and more I kind of learned about the brain, I was like, wow, this is really interesting and complex and really cool. And it just kind of grabbed my curiosity. And so my undergrad was in behavioral neuroscience, which was, mm -hmm. it was in the, the psychology department, um, but had a focus on the biology of the brain. Mm -hmm. And I, I just think it's so fascinating um, how going from a, an individual neuron standpoint to a circuit standpoint to a, a global mm -hmm. brain standpoint gives rise to consciousness and feelings and thoughts of love and hate and all these really interesting topics as well. Um, and then the pharmacology is obviously very highly tied into that. Mm -hmm. You have all these psychotropic chemicals that have effects on your brain and your nervous system. So, yeah. Yeah, no, totally. It, um, in my undergrad, I studied um, philosophy and psychology, um, partially because I had a lot of the same interests. And um, I took a, a brain physiology class, and it was one of the hardest classes I've ever had, but also one of the like most fascinating classes that I've ever, ever taken. I still have the textbook on my, my bookshelf in my office here that I still go back and look at. And it, uh, what was interesting is I was also studying philosophy of mind um, at the time too. And there's the, this thought experiment of, you know, if you could organize people to do certain things and basically act kind of like circuits, if you could coordinate the activity of people, let's say, you know, somewhere like the, the size of Texas or Alaska, you know, big land, you know, math, got all of these, these people piled in there and you fed information in and they did what they were, you know, sort of programmed to do. Everyone's doing a relatively simple thing, but as a whole, you know, it's coming into this complex thing. Can you um, essentially create consciousness that way? You know, if you made the system complex enough, um, just through that, could you somehow generate some, you know, uh, level of consciousness if, if that's what's happening in the brain as well. And it gets into this question of, um, you know, emergence, you know, is the con is consciousness something that emerges through complexity or is it something else? But that's something that I, that I always found very, very fascinating. Yeah. One kind of quote that I really like about the complexity of the brain. Um, so you, you have about, um, uh, 80 to 90 billion cells in your or neurons in your head. Um, and each one of those has on average about five to 10,000 connections to other neurons. And when you do the computation on that, that there's more unique firing patterns in the brain than there are atoms in the known universe. Wow. So yeah, it's like, it's just like, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Really, really, really heavy. 
Yeah, yeah. And then, and it's humbling to study that complexity, to like, you know, try to wrap your mind around it as much as you can. And then to, you know, one thing that's cool when you choose a discipline like that and you dive into it is usually when you get to the other side is you realize just how little you know or how how little anyone knows, you know, and you're studying some of the best minds on these topics and you realize there's still these huge gaps of understanding and and knowledge, which um, yeah, it can be very humbling and it can incite that, um, you know, really intense curiosity about like, well, how do we push that a little further? How do we shed a little more light on there? Um, yeah, that kind of stuff is super fascinating. And how did you end up getting to work with Salvia? And when was that? Because I also know that Salvia started to get banned uh, when I was in college, um, at least in Mississippi where I was, it got banned uh, before I finished college. Um, and I don't know where it's still allowed, but. Yeah, I think it's a kind of a state by state thing. And I mm -hmm. think some states you can still actually get it. Um, but this would have been during my undergrad. I think this was about 2015. Um, mm -hmm. 2016 is when I was in the lab. Um, and so I think it was still legal there in the state at the time. Um, I, I'm not sure the actual regulatory mm -hmm. hoops we had to jump through, but we basically just had a few large 50 gallon drums full of plant material that we would um, <laughs> extract, extract from every now and then. Yeah. And what specifically um, were you looking at? Were you doing, um, so you, you said you were looking at opioid um, receptors and that sort of thing, but uh, more specifically, what was your group really um, trying to investigate? Yeah, so the, the interesting thing that you mentioned about salvia, um, salvinorin A is the main compound in there. It's actually a kappa opioid receptor. So there's yeah. three, three different types of opioid receptors, uh, mu, delta, and kappa. And we don't know, there's not a lot of research on the kappa right now. Um, and it's a little bit harder to make um, good drugs for that because you get side effects like hallucinations and um, dysphoria. <laughs> yeah. But our goal, you could actually make small changes to the molecule and it would very easily turn from a kappa to a mu opioid receptor agonist. Oh. And that's actually how basically all of our standard opioids work like um, mm -hmm. morphine and oxycodone and stuff like that. Um, so we were still kind of hitting the same receptor, but we were also looking at something a little bit more complex, something called biased signaling. Mm -hmm. And so what this means for um, those of you who don't know, when you activate a receptor, it um, has a typical signaling cascade that it does, mm -hmm. um, but you can actually activate multiple things. And when you activate it in different ways, you can actually um, bias it towards one path or another. And so we think that one pathway is more associated with the um, addiction um, side of the opioids. And we think that the other pathway is more associated with the pain relief side. And so we were trying to essentially make compounds that were more biased to the pathway that would be for pain relief than the pathway for drug addiction. That is super fascinating. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So that's, you can actually try to nudge these opioid compounds to try to provide more pain relief and less addictive potential. Yeah. And for anyone who's in science, who kind of will understand these terms. One of the pathways is a beta arrestin pathway. Mm -hmm. um, and the other pathway is a CAMP pathway, which is another yeah, common yeah. cell signaling or pathway. Yeah. Yeah. It's involved in a lot of stuff. I did a little bit of studying on the, the CAMP pathway for um, looking at autophagy involved in that. Um, no. Yeah, that's that's yeah, super super cool. That's that's honestly something that I um, I think I've come across that concept of bias signaling a long time ago. Never thought about it again, probably since I came across it in college, and um, never thought about it in that context. That is that is super cool, and and you're able to flip. So, what changes to the molecule did you make uh, to salvinorin A to make that flip in the type of op opioid receptor that it would target? So there's a, um, an acetyl group on there and mm -hmm. you, we would essentially just attach or like switch it out for a phenol group. And that would essentially, oh. yeah, essentially get, get us from kappa to mu. Um, now the work that I was doing was 
essentially modifying a different part of the molecule, but part of the, the lab has been working with this molecule for for years and years. So they, they had modified different functional groups um, just about everywhere on the on the molecule. Wow, man, that is super fascinating. And, and looping it back around to cannabinoid science, there's a lot of that work going on right now of substituting functional groups, um, trying to... So talking about the quinone derivatives again that I was mentioning earlier that have me very interested, um, you know, CBD can oxidize into this uh, cannabidiol quinone compound, which anyone listening that isn't super familiar with chemistry, but maybe you know a little bit about um, some of the structure stuff, you know, these quinone groups, it's basically in the CBD molecule, you basically take this phenolic uh, structure in the molecule and you just put double bonded oxygens um, on the top and bottom of the aromatic ring, basically, and that, that creates your sort of quinone structure. And um, researchers are very interested in trying to develop what are called semi-synthetic cannabinoid drugs um, by doing similar things like this forced oxidation into these quinone groups and then stacking some functional groups onto that. So you make this like semi-synthetic CBD and then you start just sort of decorating it. I mean, it's it's funny the language we use for chemistry, but literally like you're adding decorations or ornaments you know, onto these molecules and you see what they do. And there are some um, drugs now that are being investigated um, that have been developed this way from CBD and, and other cannabinoids. CBG, I know is another one there. There's a semi-synthetic version of CBG and I, there's no way I can remember the names without looking at them because they're very like nondescript, just like a few letters and a couple of numbers. I think the, um, the CBD quinone derivatives like VCE something, VCE-008-4 or something like that. It's literally something like that. But uh, this is fascinating how this this kind of connects together. I mean, I know the work you're doing now is, you know, very different than all of that work, but it's, I wanted to make sure to highlight your your background in that way um, and some of the things that you've um, been doing, because you never know in the future, uh, some of that knowledge could come in very much very handy, um, even in terms of CBD and some of the work yeah. that's going on now. Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. It's super, super fascinating to me. I love geeking out on, on neuroscience. I, I considered for a while going into neuroscience. And so anytime I talk to somebody that's remotely interested in that stuff, I always want to dive into it a little bit. Um, well, to, to start to bring our conversation around, I know I've kept you for over an hour now, but, um, to bring things around a little bit, um, I guess one other question I'll ask you before wrapping things up is what's been the consumer response to what you're doing? We've talked about how companies have reacted and what your experience with labs are, but uh, what about the people that are actually buying products from you? Are they recognizing the added value of what you're trying to do? I think that some of them do, but I definitely think there's a lack of, or a need for education because mm -hmm. um, a lot of people didn't really know to even look for this type of stuff um, before, you know, finding true potency. And so um, for consumers, I don't know that that's something that was on the front of their mind. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that some of them for sure see the value um, after we kind of guide them. Mm -hmm. um, but in general, the I don't think that the knowledge is really public right now. Yeah, well, maybe we can make a dent in that through this conversation. And one thing I want to do in the show notes for this conversation is try to link um, some of the papers that we've mentioned, so the JAMA study, but also links to um, the FDA records um, from like 2015 or 2016 and, and more recently that show um, some of this work. Because I think CBD is booming so much, um, which is exciting on one end because it gets people interested in cannabis. It gets them thinking about plant medicine. It gets them thinking about all of these different things that I find exciting. I'm always excited to think about cannabis as a uh, a gateway towards learning about other uh, natural products and plant medicines and stuff and because I come from a world of just natural products, and that's how I, I see cannabis. But also with that rise of interest, you get rise in fraud, rise in all these things. So I think by us having this conversation and hopefully highlighting for people just how rampant 
the misrepresentation of CBD products are on the market. I mean, I think um, I wrote a uh, an article recently for uh, one of my clients where we were talking about the history of the CBD industry, and I think I came across a stat that said that about a thousand new CBD brands came on the market last year, just last year, <laughs> and new brands. So um, there's a lot for consumers to wade through, and um, you know, while cannabis and CBD are are pretty safe, there are risks, and we have to be real about that too. Um, you know, there was a study that came out uh, recently that speculated but couldn't pin down definitively uh, whether CBD contributed to a what ended up being a fatal um, inflammatory reaction in a patient that was taking another drug that had very toxic side effects. You know, at certain levels, and they had the only issue that they could come up with is that the patient had switched from their normal CBD products to a liposomal um, nano emulsified uh, product. Theoretically, you know, maybe it had higher bioavailability and maybe that caused greater interactions with liver enzymes and maybe that boosted the other drug they were taking. And uh, we don't really know, but it highlights how seriously we need to take this and, and to think about it. And that, um, for anyone listening that consumes a lot of CBD products, you really need to think carefully about the brands you're supporting and the products you're consuming. And sometimes it's not enough just to um, look at a brand's C of A's that they uh, may have publicly available. Because, you know, like you pointed out, how old are those COAs? Have they been doctored? Oh, another thing I wanted to ask you before we wrap up, have you run into fraudulent C of A's? Um, not that we could tell. Um, okay. so yeah, we, we've tried to kind of look for edits and stuff like that, but we haven't seen any, um, straight out fraudulent ones yet, but it is something you have in your mind. Yeah. And, um, some people might be good at Photoshop as well. So it might right. be a, a good, um, Photoshop that we can't tell that it's actually fraudulent. Yeah. Yeah. That's something that's been on my mind that I wonder about, particularly in the CBD industry is are people just making up c of a's um and posting them online it was something that was a big issue in the early days of the medical cannabis market um, out here in oregon and i'm sure everywhere where there's testing and there aren't strict regulations um even the labs there were you know fake labs that would just issue pdfs they take your sample disappear into a room and then come back with a pdf that you know you use so that's something i'll, I'll be interested to follow up with you once you've been doing this for you know, a year or two or three, uh, to see if, if that's an issue and, and what you notice. Um, well to wrap up here, I want to give you an opportunity to, um, well, first I want to thank you for giving up so much of your time. You know, we've definitely gone well over an hour now, almost an hour and a half. Um, I want to just kind of hand the platform over to you to let people know how to find true potency, how to learn about you, and if there are any other resources that you'd recommend to people, um, or if there are any other topics that we haven't gotten into that you think are really critical you want to make sure people hear about, um, I'm going to hand the podcast platform over to you to do with as you will. Well, I really appreciate you having me on today, so thank you. Um, yeah. And I appreciate everyone for listening here. I hope you took away some good information from our conversation today. Um, but you can find True Potency at truepotency.com. Now that's T-R-U, no E, potency. Um, uh, we also have a Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, and I help run our Facebook group that's attached to um, our Facebook page. And I try to basically post new articles there every day, whether it's something new in CBD or cannabis science or new legislation or something like that. Um, I also try to maintain a, a blog, which... Um, we try to do some education there as well. So, um, what is the entourage effect? Some basics like that. Um, but I definitely think that one of the big takeaways for people who are new to CBD is, um, be careful what you're shopping for, um, and vet the company because you could be getting something that's completely different than what you actually order. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, everyone that's listening, thanks so much for tuning in and, and checking out this conversation. I hope it's really been valuable to you, and I hope that it um, – ultimately, I hope it helps uh, 
keep you safe and healthy. So especially in these interesting, trying times we find ourselves in. So um, if you want to learn more about Curious About Cannabis, go to cacpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Um, we've also got a YouTube channel you can check out as well if you're interested in that, that I post too. And other than that, um, I look forward to connecting with you again real soon. Thanks so much. Stay curious and take it easy. Bye-bye. If you want to learn more about cannabis, you can check out the Curious About Cannabis book, available now on Amazon.com and other online book retailers. Curious About Cannabis podcast is presented by Natural Learning Enterprises, a science education company dedicated to the enhancement of public scientific literacy through education about the natural world. Curious About Cannabis is just one of several learning initiatives produced by Natural Learning Enterprises. To learn more, go to www.naturallearningenterprises.com or connect with NLE on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter.